1: getting up here necessarily on Wednesday night for 40 or 45 minutes. And the reason I enjoy it is because you never know where a lesson is going to take you. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down and thought, wow, I'm I'm only going to be able to get 20 minutes out of this. And the next thing you know, I'm throwing stuff out because I just went somewhere. I had no no idea that I was going to go. And tonight's lesson is no exception. Tonight's lesson, of all places, is going to take us to the Vatican. And it turns out that our verses tonight have a have a connection to the Pope. And so tonight, we're going to learn a very, very valuable lesson about how to read your Bible, about how to interpret your Bible. We're going to learn that from Pope Francis himself. So you probably never thought those words were going to come out of my mouth. But uh, that's exactly what's going to happen. Now we'll get there in just a minute. So let's start with a quick review. This will be the last lesson here, the last time we talk about these verses. So we are, of course, studying the Lord's Prayer, which we've said multiple times is a pattern prayer. Now, you can certainly uh, recite it by memory. That's perfectly fine. I don't have a problem with that as long as you engage with your heart and with your mind. But that's not its intent. It was never intended ...to be recited from memory. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. It's a pattern prayer. It gives us a structure that we can pray around. We can add our own words. We can spend as much time or as little time on a particular area as we see fit. Now, in this pattern prayer, there are six petitions or six requests. Uh, The first three, of course, we've covered, which belong to the Father, the Father's name, his kingdom, his will... The second, three have, or the second three have to do with us, um, give us our, this day our daily bread and forgive us of our uh, debts. We've covered both of those in the last two weeks. And tonight, we come to our sixth and final petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is Matthew six thirteen. lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I need to just tell you right up front that this is not an easy verse. Okay, We've probably, a bunch of us have, have just recited it over the years, but have you ever really thought about what it's saying? That you are asking God, don't lead me into temptation. And if you really think about that, you'll understand very quickly that that raises some very uh, difficult questions to say the least. And the, re- the reason it does is because of this verse, James one thirteen. You see, James one thirteen says this, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, when I say the word temptation, everybody in here knows exactly what that word means. To be, to be tempted is to be enticed to sin. It's to be uh, uh, lured or trapped into making a mistake or doing something wrong. And and James says God doesn't do that. God has no intention. He has no uh, desire to lure somebody into committing sin. God wants us to be holy. He doesn't want us to, to sin, break his law. He would never, ever tempt you to fall into sin. Now, that's very clear, right? So, why then does Jesus say, when you pray, pray like this, God, don't lead me into temptation. How do, you, how do you reconcile these two things that God doesn't tempt, but at the same time, uh, Jesus says you need to ask God not to lead you into temptation. Now, when you really think about that, you can see why this verse can make people uncomfortable it just seems like these two things don't quite fit very nicely together. It makes people so uncomfortable that in 2019, the Catholic Church decided to change the Lord's Prayer. They decided to change it at the behest of Pope Francis. Pope Francis says, lead us not into temptation is a bad translation. It's a bad translation. And so they did. Now, of course, they didn't change it in their Bible, in the Bible. They didn't rewrite the Bible, but they changed it in their rituals. They changed it in their liturgy. They changed it in their ceremonies, all of those kind of things. They changed it. And the change was this. Lead us not into temptation. In the Catholic Church now becomes don't let us fall into temptation. And that change has been has been made Now, you might think, okay, you know, a couple thousand years have gone by. Why are they changing it? What's the reasoning? What's the rationale? Well, I want you to hear Pope Francis' words himself. This is his reasoning or rationale for making that change. He said this. He said, I am the one who falls. It's not him talking about God pushing me into temptation to then see how I have fallen. A father doesn't do that. A father helps you to get up immediately. It's Satan who leads people into temptation. That's his department. Okay? Now, we're going to get into that verse a little bit later. We're going to talk about what it means. But before we do, there is a huge, huge lesson for us to learn from what he just said. I mean, an incredible lesson that we can learn from the Pope himself. And unfortunately, the lesson is how not to do it. He's not doing it the right way, he's doing it the wrong way. And so, the lesson that we're going to learn from him is don't make them the same mistake that he made. Now, let me explain what I mean. As Christians, you and I believe, I hope, that God reveals himself through Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, for all, all scripture is God-breathed. Hebrews 1 says, in, 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 in past days he's spoken to us through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son. God reveals who he is through his, uh, through his holy word. Now, here's the thing. You and I could walk outside tonight and, and we can look up at the stars and, and we can learn something about God. We can look at the trees and all the, the flora that he's created, and we can learn something about God. We can look at our bodies, and we can learn something about God. We can learn that he's powerful. I mean, to, to create all this and design all this, he's incredibly powerful. We can learn that he is, his intellect is beyond anything, not only that we can imagine. We, we can't even fathom his intellect. I mean, it's, it's beyond uh, calling it super smarter. It's just, it's beyond anything we can fathom. And by the way, he is incredibly creative, is he not? I mean, just incredibly creative. I heard a guy say to me one time, uh, as an example, he said, I want you to create, did you know that when we try to create new colors, the only way we can create a color from scratch is by combining things that already exist? We can't just come up with a new color, but God came up with the whole color scheme just out of nothing. That's how creative he is. We, we can want, learn wonderful things about God by looking at nature, as, as Psalms 19 and Romans 1 both tell us. But what nature cannot tell us is who he is. It can't tell us who he is. It can't tell us, does he have a body or does he not have a body? It, it can't tell us, how does he want to be referred to? It can't tell us what's his name. It can't tell us the things that he loves, the things that he values, or the things that he detests and the things that he hates. It can't tell us any of that. And in order for us to know that, he has to reveal those things, right? He has to tell us those things. And, of course, he has done that through the Holy Scripture, which is the Bible. So this is the right approach to Scripture, When you and I come to Scripture, we are assuming that Scripture is true. We are assuming that this is the Word of God, that God is telling uh, telling us, hey, this is who I am. So if we come to Scripture and Scripture says God does such and such, we say, okay, uh, I may not understand that, but if that's who you are, God, I accept it. Are you with me? Now, it's perfectly all right to ask things like, well, why does he do that? What's he trying to accomplish? What's his purpose behind that? That, That's perfectly okay. God told Job, come let us reason together. God has no problem with us searching into the deep things of God. But we assume that the Bible is God revealing himself. This is the wrong way to do it. The wrong way to do it is to say, you know what? I already know what's good. I already know what's good and right. So if I come to the Bible and the Bible tells me something that God does that's contrary to what I think, well, guess what? The Bible must be wrong. The Bible must be corrupted. The Bible must be uh, 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 a, b- a bad translation. Guys, listen, you're seeing this all across America today. It's It's infested in our churches. Things like this. I know what love is. I already know what love is. I don't need the Bible to tell me that. Love is 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 just affirming people, who, you know, where they are. Love is just accepting people for who they are. Just let love is letting be people, let people be who they are and their true self. That's what love is. So if I come to the Bible and the Bible says, oh, uh, yeah, by the way, those things they're doing is an abomination to God. God hates those things. Well, guess what? Well, then the Bible must be wrong because I already know what's good. I already know what's right. I already know that is the upside down way to approach Scripture. Now, listen to what the Pope said. The Pope said a father doesn't do that. A father doesn't lead their child into temptation. It's Satan who does that. That's his department. Do you see what he's doing now? See, he's coming to Scripture and he's saying, I already know what a good father is. I know what a good father does. So if the Bible tells me that God does something contrary to what I think, well, guess what? The Bible must be wrong. Are you with me? Folks, listen, in Genesis 127, it makes a very simple statement. God created man in his own image. That is the opposite of that. That is creating God in your image. That's creating God in your image. I already know what love is. I already know what a good father is. Therefore, I'm going to shove God into my box. I'm going to make God look just like what I think he ought to look like. Listen, we are fallen creatures. We have finite minds that are distorted by sin and distorted by culture. We have no business forcing God into a mold. We have no business forcing God into a box of what we think a good father does or doesn't do. Now, see, this is an easy mistake for us to make, but you cannot make this mistake. There's a reason Jesus started the Lord's Prayer this way. Our Father who art in heaven. Because our Father in heaven is not exactly like our fathers here on earth. Thank God, by the way. Thank God he's not like our fathers here on earth in every way. Isaiah 55, 8 says this, My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As the heavens are above the earth, so a heavenly father's ways are higher than an earthly father's ways. And you see, because of that, listen, I'm going to say this twice, and then I'm going to prove it. Our heavenly father absolutely, Does things that an earthly father would never do. Because his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Not only can he, he does do things that an earthly father would never do. I'm going to give you three examples. Number one, no human father would take the life of his child as a sacrifice for others. Listen, I got two sons, and I can tell you right now if you came to me and said, Derek, we want to. We want you to take the life of one of your your children, and you're going to save a thousand, or a hundred thousand, or a million. You know what my answer is going to be? No. No, I get where you're coming from, but and I feel bad. <laughs> but this is mine. This is the one God gave me. I'm not doing that. I'm just not going to do that. But God did it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Acts 10 tells us that the, that the Jews and the Romans and, and, and Herod and Pontius Pilate were all gathered together to do what God had, plead, had planned and predestined to be done. And of course, Isaiah 53 says this, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by who? By his father. It was his, the will of his father to crush him. I wouldn't do it. My guess is the majority of you wouldn't do it, but God did it. Uh, uh, No human father would ever send a famine on the, the land of their children. No human father would sell their child into slavery. But God did that. Psalms 105 says this, When he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Y'all remember the story, right? Joseph's brothers throw him in a pit. They sell him to a slave trader. He's taken to Egypt, sold there uh, to a man by the name of Potiphar, becomes a slave, ends up going into prison, being falsely accused of rape, all kind of things. Years later, because of a famine, his brothers come to Egypt to get food. They're reunited with Joseph, and Joseph makes this statement to them. He says, what you did, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good. God planned all that out. God was instrumental. God was behind all of that. A human father would never do that, but God does. Or how about, let's just use the one Pope Francis said, no human father would lead his child into temptation. But God did. God did. Matthew 4, 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God did exactly that. Listen, don't don't get me wrong. There are some wonderful analysis and 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 comparisons that we can make between human fathers and and our heavenly Father. There, there's some perfectly valid comparisons. In fact, the Bible itself gives us those comparisons. For example, Jesus in Matthew seven eleven said this: If you A human father, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does your heavenly father know how to give good things to those who ask him? Those are the words of Jesus. He's comparing the heavenly father with an earthly father. Or how about the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 9? He said this, besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. How much more? Should we respect the discipline of a heavenly father? So there are some perfectly valid analogies and comparisons, but always remember, guys, analogies and comparisons always have limitations. You can't take what I know an earthly father to be and say, well, the heavenly father's got to fit into that box. No. No, not at all. You see, as human parents, we tend... Well, we don't tend. We protect our children, don't we? Every one of us. No, none of us want our children to suffer. None of us want our children to feel pain. None of us want our children to, to fail. Nobody, none of us want that. And so we'll do just about anything to keep them from experiencing those things. But listen to me. God is not like that. God has a much bigger purpose in mind. You know, my kids are my kids. They're given to me, and I, I I try to protect them. But God has got a bunch of children, and He's got much higher purposes in mind. That's why God, see, God understands that suffering in your life produces good Christian qualities. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope that won't put you to shame. God knows that. And he will allow suffering where we would never allow that for our kids. I'm not going to let that happen. See, God can see down the road. God knows what's coming. God knows you need to endure, and God knows you need to be strong. And in order to do that, He's going to let you go through suffering. Or maybe this, as Second Corinthians one four says, He comforts us in our affliction, so that we can turn around and comfort somebody else with the same thing. Sometimes He will let you go through something. So years later, you can turn around and comfort somebody who's going through the exact same thing. He's he's got a much bigger picture than we do. We we live in the moment. God lives in eternity. So he will certainly do things that a heavenly father would not do. So here's my and the lesson that we learned from Pope Francis. And that is this. You and I should learn about our heavenly father from scripture, not from some idea that we have. Of what a good father should and shouldn't do. Are you with me? We learn from the Bible. That's where we get our truth. So let's come back to our scripture. And let's speak specifically to what Pope Francis said. He says this is a bad translation. No it's not. It's not a bad translation. The translation is the right translation. It really does say. The Greek word really does mean to lead into. Or to bring into temptation it doesn't mean to fall it means somebody taking you by the hand and leading you or picking you up and bringing you in fact it's used a couple other places i'll let you see the exact same word luke five eighteen says this some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to bring him into the house it's the same word it's the same word Luke 12:11 and Jesus said this and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities that's the same word that he used when he said when don't uh, ask God not to lead us into temptation it's the same word that is a good and right translation of that phrase now some people have looked at it a different way and because again this idea of God leading us to temptation makes us uncomfortable so some people say well wouldn't wouldn't a better word there be, lead us not into testing. Now why would they why would they say that? Well, can we all agree that in English the word temptation has, has, is negative, right? You know, as we said earlier, that word means to entice somebody to commit a wrong or make a mistake or commit a, a sin. So it has a very negative connotation. But the word testing is positive. Testing means to, uh, to identify the substance of something or the, the character of something. That's a, that's a good, positive, redemptive uh, word. But here's the thing. In the New Testament, the word that's used in the Greek is the exact same word for both. It, it, it's a neutral word. It doesn't have a, a negative connotation or it doesn't have a positive connotation. The, the word is parazo. And sometimes it's translated differently. I'll give you two examples. In Mark 4.1, we've already read this scripture. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That word tempted is the word parazo. And translators there translated it tempted. But in Hebrews 11.7, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, it's the exact same word. It's the same word in the Greek. So, translators have to make a decision. When they see that word, they have to decide, is this a temptation or is this a testing? They have to kind of decide which word they're going to use. So, how do they do that? Well, they look at it in context, right? They look at wh- what's the testing for or what's the purpose or the motivation of it. Now, we know the devil doesn't come with positive thoughts in mind, does he? The devil's coming to get you to sin. The devil's coming to get you to rebel against the Father. That's always his motivation. So in Scripture, whenever the actor is Satan, Satan is doing the parazo, translators will say, well, that that must be a temptation, and they'll translate it as temptation. On the other hand, God also does parazo, but his purpose and his motivations are positive. Not trying to get you, He's not trying to tempt you into sin. He's testing you to see who you really are. He's testing your character. He's testing you to refine us. His purposes are always redemptive. So what translators do is they, they look at it in context. For example, James 1, 3 through four says this: "For you know that you're the parazo of your faith." It's the same word. But notice how they translate it testing. Why? Because it produces steadfastness or endurance, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. So the devil does the tempting, God does the testing. And that's how they figure it out. They look at it in context. So tonight, I want you to put on your translator hat. You get to be the translator, and you get to translate that verse. Matthew six thirteen: Lead us not into parazo. But deliver us from evil. Now you tell me, would you have translated that, "Lead us not into testing," or would you said, "Lead us not into temptation"? See, the problem is, testing makes no sense, right? Because testing, its whole point is to do good. Its whole point is is redemptive. Its whole point is to produce good things in you, not bad. So it makes no sense to say, "God, don't lead me into testing." That makes no sense at all. You see, the translation is right. It's exactly what it should say. But that still doesn't answer our question. How do we reconcile James 1 where God doesn't tempt with Matthew six thirteen, Pray like this. Do not lead us into temptation. How do we reconcile those two? Well, there's only one answer. It's only one answer. And what Jesus is teaching us here is that God is sovereign. God is, this is so beautiful. I just love this. I just love this. Because what he's teaching us here, even when it comes to your temptation, your father's in control. Even when it comes to your temptation, child of God, your father's in control. Why is this so important? It's important because... Over the years, this, this idea creeps into the church called dualism. And dualism teaches that there are two entities in this world or in this universe, one good and one bad. One is we call God and the other we call the devil. But dualism teaches that they're equal, that they're equal powers. And sometimes the, the, the good wins and sometimes the, the evil wins, but they're fighting for control. Folks, listen to me. <laughs> That ain't the Bible. Here's God and here's Satan. And he lines up in submission to God just like everybody else. He is a created being. Dualism is a heresy. It's a false teaching. The devil answers to God. And we see this all the time in the Bible. Two great examples. I'll give them to you tonight. The first one is Job. Y'all know the story of Job. The devil comes before God one day and God says, "Man, have you seen my servant Job? <laughs> that guy's got it going on, man. He is awesome." And the devil says, "Yeah, you just you t- you, t- you you take away some of the stuff he has, he'll curse you to your face. Just take away touch some of his stuff and see what happens. He he just loves you because you protecting him." So God tells Job and and Job 1:12, he says to Satan, he said, "Okay." All that he has is in your hand. Just don't touch his body. Don't touch him. So Satan goes out, destroys his home, destroys his crops, destroys his herds, destroys his family. But Job doesn't does not curse God. So Satan goes back and God's like, What'd I tell you? <laughs> He's awesome, man. And Satan says, Yeah, you touch his body, and he'll curse you to your face. And God gives him permission. He says, Okay. You can touch his body, but you can't kill him. And Satan goes out and afflicts him with these bulls, and you can go read the read the book. But here's the thing. With everything that Job went through, God was always giving permission. God was always allowing it. And God was always setting limits on it. Satan could do nothing, nothing apart from God allowing it to happen. Now notice you got two people in this it's a, it's, a, it's a great story because Job is sitting there going through all this stuff. He has no idea what's going on. But we get to look behind the curtain. We get to see what's going on in the heavenlies. And what we see is the devil is tempting him, trying to get him to curse God, trying to get him to rebel against his father. And that, that was Satan's purpose. But listen, God, God had something else in mind. He was going to create a testimony that would literally last for millennia. 3,000, Three thousand thirty five hundred years later, do you know Job is the oldest book in the in the Bible that Job existed probably before Abraham, before the patriarchs, before any of that, and here we are thousands of years later, and we still talk about job, God did something incredible. That was his purpose. We see the same thing, by the way, in the story of Jesus. We've already read this now for the third time, Matthew 4.1. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, we all know what Satan wanted, right? Satan wanted to bring him down. Satan wanted him to, to bow down to him. He wanted him to sin. He wanted him to uh, abandon God. But that wasn't God's purpose. See, God was creating us a high priest who could sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way as we are. God had redemptive purposes in mind. See, God does not do the tempting, but he certainly, we can see that he leads us to it. He allows it to happen to us, sets the limits on it. He he is in control even of those areas of our life, and I love that. I love that. Thank God we serve a sovereign God. Thank God because listen, if you take that out of the Bible, what do we? I mean, what is that even? What are we left with? Thank God we don't even have to, to to think about that. God certainly does not tempt us. He would never present us, but He will lead us into situations. Now we I said earlier, it's okay to ask why. Why would God do this? Why would He lead us to temptation? Well, let me give you three things. Number one. Remember, his purpose in allowing temptations and trials is never for us to fall into sin. That's what Satan wants. But that, God does not want that at all. So we have to ask the question then, okay, well, why would he allow that to happen in my life? Well, let me give you one thing. God's purpose, one of his purposes is to reveal what's in your heart. Not to him, because he already knows. He's revealing it to you. See listen look at James 1:14 each person is tempted when he's inured and enticed by his own desires See if you don't have a desire for something you can't be tempted to it So God will allow us sometimes to come and be tempted because what he's trying to show us is you've got these things down inside of you that you may not even know you got You got desires that that makes you vulnerable you need to get rid of them you need to bring them under submission you need to get them out of your life. And sometimes we, we, we're just going, thing, man, I'm, I got it going good. Nothing's going to happen to me. I'm strong. I'm mature. I'm in church. I'm in the Word. I, I don't." And all of a sudden, you're, you're up against a temptation and you see a desire inside of you that you didn't even know you had. God allowed that to happen because remember, God's purpose, by the way, is always to make us stronger. God's purpose is always to make us more faithful. God's purpose is always holiness and sanctification. He's always got a bigger picture in mind. One more question, and then I'll close. So if even this is a good thing, why would we ask God not to do it? Why would we say, God, don't lead us in a temptation? Don't let me, please don't let me go over here where I'm faced with these temptations. Don't, don't let me, don't do that. Why would we do that? Well, let me go back and say one more thing. God, I think this reminds us that God is guiding all aspects of our life. When we are his children, he is guiding all aspects of our life. I don't think Jesus is teaching us here to say, God, don't lead me to that. Because again, you go back and look he was, Jesus was led by the Spirit, that was the will of God. I don't think Jesus is saying to to pray against that or uh, like that's you know don't don't do that. I think what he's saying is, don't let us fall into it. See, there's a difference between him leading us to temptation and then him leading us into it. And I think what he's saying there is God, don't let me be trapped by it don't 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 let me fall into the pit." Don't let me yield to it. I don't mind going through it. I think that's a good thing and it's a right thing and it makes me better. But God, don't let me fall into it. Don't lead me down into the pit. And it reminds us, by the way, because this prayer has two parts. Don't forget, lead me not into temptation and what? Deliver me from evil. See, one of the great things about this last request is it reminds us that if we're going to be delivered from temptation, it's God that's going to do it. It's God that's going to do it. It's not your strength and your discipline and your character and your will. It's God. Matthew 6, 13. Again, what he's saying there is deliver me from evil. By the way, that word evil can mean evil, and it can also mean the evil one but it's both, isn't it? Deliver me from Satan, but also deliver me from the evil desires that exist in my own life. Deliver me from both of those. It's a plea for God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Let me read you two scriptures. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There again, God is allowing you to be tempted, but he's setting limitations. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, and he will give you a way out. He'll get, I mean, so he's there. He's with you. I'll give you one more second. Peter 2, 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. At the end, you and I need to ask God to do for us what he did for Jesus. I'd encourage you tonight and go back to read the temptation of Jesus every time. And you know what Jesus did. Every time, though he was led to temptation, every time he answered with the word of God. Every time, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. That's what we're praying. God, deliver us. Lead us to the testing. Lead us to the temptation. We know you got good purposes, but God deliver us out of it. Don't let us fall into it. All right, one more quick thing I need to close before we go tonight. I need to talk about the doxology. Now, I thought I was just going to throw this up there, and I thought, well, I better explain. Have you all ever heard that word doxology? Doxology is a Greek word. Dox means glory, and logos means word. So doxology means a glory word or a word about God's glory. If you're a a a a reader of a translation specifically the King James version which came out in 1611 and you open your Bible and you read Matthew 6:13 it's going to look like that. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You could you could quote that by heart, right? If you go look at some other Bible translations, for example, the Amplified Bible, you might notice that the words are there, but they've got brackets around them. You may wonder why they got brackets around them. And then, of course, if you come to more modern translations like the ESV, the English Standard Version, the American Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, the NIV, the New Living Translation, you'll notice it's not there at all. It's gone. A lot of times you'll see a little note in your Bible and it'll point to it down in a footnote. So you may wonder, I actually had an email on this from somebody uh, a couple of weeks ago. You may wonder, okay, why is that not in my Bible? I've been quoting the Lord's Prayer for years. Well, by the way, remember last y'all, Was it last week's lesson we talked about William Tyndale? Y'all remember that? The, the, what we're quoting doesn't come from the Bible. What we're quoting actually comes from the Anglican book of prayer that's been passed down through the centuries to Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians. So that's where we quote it from, not necessarily from Scripture. So what's going on, depending on what translation? Well, as I said, newer translations, um, uh, like the ESV, which is what I use, the New American Standard uh, they typically leave it out or put it, maybe put it in brackets. They might have a little footnote to it. And the reason for that is because that quote is not found in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. Okay? Now remember, the King James is, a, and by the way, the King James is a beautiful translation. It's a wonderful translation. But it was created in 1611. So do the math. What is that, 412 years ago, right? And in the last 400 years, archaeologists and linguists have, have uncovered older and older and older manuscripts. We get closer and closer and closer back to the original Gospels, back to the original documents. And as they do, those older documents, the ones that are that are closer, they do not have that in there. Okay? So... What probably what happened because Jews typically end prayers with a doxology um that's just typically how Jews pray, and by the way, ending that prayer deliver. let's let's let us admit this ending that prayer deliver us from uh um temptation i'm sorry uh don't lead us into temptation, deliver us from evil that's kind of abrupt isn't it? It's kind of like we expect something more. More than likely, that was a, a blurb. That doxology was probably added sometime around the second century. Now, let me say this. There's no doubt that it's biblical in the sense that it doesn't teach us anything that the Bible doesn't already teach. For example, this is 1 Chronicles 29, 11. These are the words of David. David says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. That is a great doxology right there. And many people think that who, the scribe that added it actually used that as his basis for uh, adding that. So it's a, it's a, it, biblically, it's true. There's nothing in there that's wrong. So if you want to pray that when you pray the Lord's Prayer... Have at it, because let me tell you, the kingdom does belong to him, and the power does belong to him, and the majesty does belong to him—not just now, but forever and ever. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful. It's it's biblical in its teachings. Certainly worth praying uh, if you want to do that. But the evidence—if you go look at the evidence—it's um, just not there that that was in the original document. Uh, i 'm not going to be here next week. We have an incredible guest coming, and once again i 'm not going to tell you who it is you've got to come and see, but uh, I have reached out to for a special guest to come, and uh, it is going to be it's going to be very, very special i 'll be out of town, but uh i 'll certainly be with you in spirit let 's pray Father, Lord, we love you we thank you for your incredible incredible word. I thank you for the last two months where we have got to just delve into the words of your son in a way that, that many of us never have before. And what an incredible experience it has um, been. And so I just thank you. I thank you. I know that it's affected my prayer life. I've heard from, from many here that it's certainly affected their prayer life. And, and God, I, I just I pray that you continue to, as, even as we move on and begin to cover other subjects, I pray that you don't let this go in our heart, but you just continue to let it grow uh, there into truth and into changed lives. Father, we love you. We give you praise for all you do. And we just uh, we just thank you and give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you
0: all. Y'all are- thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrofferville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrofferville.com for more information and directions.